Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you once again to study the Scriptures with us as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel or Good News about the Kingdom of God. It would be hard to overemphasize the absolute importance of understanding what Jesus meant by the Kingdom of God. The Gospel, the Christian saving Gospel, is about the Kingdom of God. It's certainly also about the death of Jesus and his blood shed for us at Calvary, but that's only part of the story. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom long before he mentioned a word about his death on the cross and his resurrection. It's a fallacy to imagine that the gospel is only the death and resurrection of Jesus. Those are, of course, essential elements in the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, but they do not comprise the totality of the gospel message. If you want to grasp the idea of the kingdom, may I earnestly counsel you not to neglect that 77% of your Bible, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. When Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God to his compatriots there in Israel in the first century, he assumed that they knew what the kingdom of God was. Unfortunately, these 2,000 years later, after the Bible has been put through the ringer of church tradition, and a great deal has become confusing, which was not originally confusing, it's necessary to restate with clarity what the kingdom of God is. Let me tell you that the kingdom of God in the Bible is not primarily something in your heart now. The text you find in Luke 17, verse 21, in the King James Version, is almost certainly a mistranslation, and it's not typical of the kingdom texts in the Bible. To define the kingdom, we must go back to the book of Genesis, back to the book of Exodus, back indeed to the prophets of Israel, and above all to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel defines the kingdom of God quite clearly for us. It's to be a real world empire on the earth, to be supervised and governed by the Son of Man, who is Jesus, and by the saints co-ruling with him. That's the kingdom as Jesus would have understood it, and as his friends, his compatriots, his fellow Israelites in Palestine in the first century that's the way they would have understood it too. The kingdom of God is a perfectly clear idea if you'll start by defining it not in single texts out of the book of Romans, for example, but in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Daniel. Paul, for instance, can speak of the kingdom of God as love and joy and peace, and many people think that that's sufficient to tell them what the kingdom is. However, they neglect the fact that Paul also said that our inheritance of the kingdom is in the future. He's not, therefore, talking about something in the present. If you look in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, you'll find that Paul warns that certain types of conduct, like homosexuality and adultery and drunkenness, if they persist in the Christian's life, they will preclude him from entrance into the kingdom of God. In Acts 14 and verse 22, Paul said, It is through much tribulation now that we enter the kingdom of God in the future. What you do in the present is to enter the church by baptism, by immersion, upon intelligent reception of the gospel of the kingdom and the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 8, verse 12. The church should prepare you to enter the kingdom when it comes with Jesus at the second coming. You see, Jesus did not invite his followers to go to heaven. If you'll take a concordance and work your way through the Bible, you'll find no such expression as an offer to Christians. Where did Jesus ever say, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to disappear to heaven as a disembodied soul, and so on? Nothing like that is said in the teaching of Jesus. What he did invite his disciples to do 
was to enter the kingdom, to inherit the kingdom in the future. That's to say, when Jesus comes to sit on his throne in Jerusalem at his second coming. Let me read you a passage out of the teaching of Jesus which makes this abundantly clear. In Matthew 25, verse 31, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and then he will say to the righteous, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do you see there that the kingdom of God is prepared now, but you'll enter it when Jesus comes and sits on his glorious throne, that's at his return to the earth, his second coming. Matthew 25, verses 31 and following are vitally important passages, along with many others which corroborate them, to show that the kingdom of God is to be inaugurated when Jesus returns. It's at the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18, that the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of God, and God, using Jesus as his agent, begins to reign. There's a beginning of the kingdom of God at the second coming and not before. It's surprising that this subject would be in any way difficult for Bible readers, but one thing has to be realized, and that is that if you've been taught something different all your life, you're not going to see it in Scripture very easily. It's hard to unlearn things. Most people approach the Scriptures with a preconceived idea. They've learned certain things from teachers they respected, and they've not carefully checked them against the gold standard of the Bible. In many cases, they've not heard the opposite point of view. In order to make up your mind on any given issue in Scripture, be it the rapture, pre or post, the millennium, pre-mill, post-mill or a-mill, the nature of God, is he three or two or one or more, the nature of Jesus, is he a man or God or a combination of the two, what happens when we die, is Sabbath-keeping mandated under the New Testament and so on. In order to make up your mind on these critically important issues, you must hear both sides of the story. Most Christians have been taught to reject one side of the story without having had the opportunity to carefully investigate the facts presented by both cases. Now listen to this statement of a leading Baptist New Testament scholar. Did he have something of value to say or didn't he? I leave you to test this carefully. The scholar says, While the majority of Christendom has been in the habit of thinking of heaven as the place for which the children of God are destined, Jesus makes the startling statement that the meek are going to possess the earth. Matthew 5 and verse 5. And this, says this scholar, agrees with the prophetic and apocalyptic tradition entirely. The kingdom of God, according to the Bible, comes from heaven to the earth, and the earth is going to be fitted to be the scene of such rule. End of quotation from that leading Bible scholar of the Baptist denomination. Now, the fact that the kingdom of God is going to be on the earth renewed is plainly stated in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 27. We read there that the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Their kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions will serve and obey them. Do you see there that the kingdom of God is destined to come on the earth, just like the empires which preceded in the prophecies of Daniel? So the kingdom of God will be the first successful peace-bringing world empire. 
supervised, of course, by Jesus, who will have returned by that time, and by his saints who will rule with him. The whole point of the biblical drama is to have God's people in power in God's place. That's to say the kingdom of God on the earth. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. They're going to have the kingdom on the earth as their possession. They're going to possess the earth. That's what it means to inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, in fact, is going to fill the whole earth, fill the whole world. We read this in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. In the days of those kings, says that prophecy, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for any other people. It will crush and put an end to all these earlier kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Now that kingdom, in verse 35 of Daniel 2, is quite clearly to be a kingdom on the earth. We read in Daniel 2.35, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and gold, those you'll remember represented those earlier empires, those empires will be crushed all at the same time, so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone, that's to say the fifth kingdom, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, that stone which struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You see, we're not talking here about filling outer space or filling some super celestial region removed from the earth. The kingdom of God is not in the sky, it's coming to the earth. That's why Jesus is coming back to reward the faithful Christians. It's backwards to suppose that we're going to him in heaven. He's coming back to us. Our reward is coming from heaven to the earth when Jesus brings it. Now that prospect of the kingdom of God coming on the earth is simply the fulfillment of the great promise of the land made to Abraham. Remember that God made a promise to Abraham that he would have a distinguished offspring or descendant who turned out to be the Messiah Jesus, according to Galatians 3.16, but also that Abraham would inherit the land forever. Hebrews 11.39 says that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs and the prophets received none of the promises that God had made in regard to the ultimate possession of the land. Hebrews 11 and verse 8 says that Abraham lived in the land of the promise. He lived in Canaan, which was the promised land, although he resided there as a resident alien. But he was looking forward to a heavenly kingdom. Now be careful. The word heavenly does not mean that the kingdom was in heaven. It means that it's coming from heaven. If you misread the word heavenly there to mean a kingdom in heaven, you simply contradict the evidence provided by the Hebrew Bible, as we've just seen, that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is to be the kingdom under the whole heaven. That's the heavenly kingdom. Heaven, if you like, is coming to this earth in the person of Jesus at his return. It's the earth, this planet, which God is still interested in. And using Jesus as his agent, as his Messiah, he's going to see that this world is born again, is renewed, according to Matthew 19.28. At that time, we know the twelve tribes of Israel will be regathered in the land. The apostles will join Jesus in that new administration. They will be seated on twelve thrones to administer the twelve tribes of Israel. Luke 22, verses 28 to 30, and Matthew 19, verse 28. That kingdom will extend its beneficial influence across the world, and it will be truly an Abrahamic kingdom. The patriarchs will have risen from the dead at the resurrection to take part in that kingdom. 
In Matthew 8, verse 11, Jesus looked ahead to that glorious time, and he said, When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God, that's the kingdom of the future which Jesus expected to administer with his saints when he returns in power and glory. No wonder that Proverbs 2.21 states, The upright are going to live in the earth or in the land. Now, why do we stress this emphasis on the kingdom of God coming on the earth? Because the Spirit of God is contained in the words of God. Jesus said in John 6, verse 63, The Spirit is contained in the words that I speak to you. The words that I speak to you, they are Spirit, they are life. That's what Jesus said, and he teaches us there that we must take in the words of Scripture because they are life-giving words. They carry the very strength and the energy of God himself. They create within us holy character. That's why we study the words of God found in Scripture. Listen to the cry of Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 1, verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the gate in the city, wisdom utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love simplicity? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing. It may be that you're seeking the Holy Spirit in all the wrong places. You won't get the Holy Spirit by somebody pushing you unconscious. You won't get the Holy Spirit by somebody convincing you that you're speaking a foreign language when you're not. But you will get the Holy Spirit when wisdom pours out her Spirit on you and makes the words of God known to you. Proverbs 1, verse 23. We urge you to ponder God's great plan in history, request from us our free book on the kingdom of God, and join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.